Welcome to the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Hello, Intelligentsia. John Jeffers here. Another episode of the Jeffers Brief. Uh, you know what? Before we get started, I, I guess the cat's with me today. He decided to come to the studio. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, I want. Something interesting happened this week. I was look. I was checking on the geographic downloads around the planet where our show is heard here on the Contra Radio Network. Believe it or not, and this is normally Western Europe tunes in. Well, not all, but most of them. Netherlands is usually like number two on downloads around the planet. So far this month, we have a new entry: Iran. The Republic of Iran. I'm sorry, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Which, it's like, what? So, I thought about it. So you know what? Yes, their government sucks. No argument. However, the people there are willing to risk imprisonment and torture in the name of freedom. They, they want it. The people want it. They're listening to me and my other co-host here on Contrario Network. I want you to know, I hear you and, I, and I've seen you. Now, for those of you that want to send me an email, you can. Contraradio at live.com. Contraradio at live.com. Just put CRN in the uh, reference so that way I'll know, you know from a listener. I like to listen to my listeners. So uh, in Spain, Mexico, just a few of the many around the planet. And my friends up in Canada, now I don't know what's going on up there. Western Canada, I think, is probably more like the conservatives here in the United States in that, you know, we had a... before we had a bunch of downloads from the Yukon. So far this month, no downloads from the Yukon, but a lot of downloads from British Columbia. I don't know. And, we, and we're still getting some from um, Ontario. So, with that said, all right. Um, one of the things I want to talk about to you is this. Yes, we have firearms. Yes, we train with firearms. But my question to you is this, listeners. How many of you actually train in low-light situations? That's right. You know, I'm watching this show and um, on TV, and believe me, network TV sucks. There's the dumbest shows ever put on the planet, which just goes to prove Hollywood is out of ideas. And they'll take anything. They'll put anything on there. That's how stupid it is, how it's become. However, so I'm watching this show. I'm not going to worry about the show. So one of the characters is going through his home, and it's, and he, and it's, it's at night, it's dark, and he's running around with his, his uh, semi, semi-auto. And I'm thinking to myself, you're in your own home. Turn the damn lights on. You paid the electric bill. And so I started thinking about it. All right. How many of my listeners actually train in low light situations? Like, for example, with um, when I was a deputy, we did train. We had to wait till the sun went down on the firing range, outside, all kinds of weather, and we trained for low light shooting and it was good training the only light that we had was we pulled a squad car onto the range and all you had were headlights and sometimes you turned the headlights off and just had the Mars lights rolling so you have red and blue flashes every so often and you're trying to pick your target and granted, yes, they're stationary targets, but things do look differently 
in low light. You know that. I'm not telling you anything new. What I am telling you is this. It's very important to train in low light situations. First of all, target identification becomes a little more difficult. Two, you can have your front sights lined up. Even if you got, you know, you got the iridescent, no, 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 the uh, iridescent um, sights, you know. And so you, you can line those up. But if you're not aimed at the right target, who cares? And a lot of times we put, you know, bad guy target, you know, the instructors would put the bad guy target. You got three choices, and they won't tell you which was the bad guy, which are the innocents. Good luck. Because you have to train for target identification at night and in low light situations. Something, if you're not doing that, you need to train for it. You need to practice it. Some of the tactical considerations, you could say, well, yeah. I just got to make it through the first round from the opposing force, the op four, the bad guy. Because when he shoots, I'm going to see the muzzle flash, and I know that's where I put my rounds. Okay. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but know this. When you shoot back, you're going to have a muzzle flash, so they're going to know where to shoot. And just because you, well, I got a flash suppressor. No, no, no. The flash suppressor just kind of disperses it and doesn't do a very good job at that. Um, if you look at some of the videos, and you can find them, you'll see the flash suppressor, all it does is take the flash and disperse it to five, like, like, like a little star, five different exit points. I mean, come on, you don't have to be a, a geometry major to figure it out. Where, where am I going to shoot? The trick is, target identification, you get the first shot off. Let, let, let's be honest. He who hits first wins. That's the way it is. That goes with the second rule. He who puts the most lead downrange will probably win. But you got to know where to put it. So I'm thinking to myself, this is so stupid. So I'm watching the show, I'm thinking, this is so stupid. The guy's wandering through his house. Turn the freaking lights on. That way you can aid with your targetification. Two, you can see what the hell's going on. See, in low-light situations, you don't always know what's going on in your surrounding area that's immediately out of your immediate field of vision. You just don't know. You can't see it. You can't. And you need to learn how to use the light curtain to your tactical advantage. Light curtain? What the hell's that? I'll just buy one on Amazon. No, you won't. A light curtain. Very simple as this. I'm going to give you an example of it. Your car headlights. All right. Yeah, that, that, that's an okay example. Your car headlights throw out the light. Okay. So you got your front of your car here. This right out here is your light curtain. It's throwing out light. If, if you stand behind your light curtain, whoever is on the other side will not be able to see back past the light curtain. The light curtain prevents it. You, case in point, have you ever seen at night, you go up to your window, and at night, if the, window, if the lights are outside the house, you can see inside the house. But, but, in the daylight, where it's sunny out and it's daylight, look in that same window. You cannot, and it's dark inside the house, you cannot see inside that house. You can't. So, with the light curtain, stand behind the light curtain. You can, you can see. Now, if you get too close to it, you're going to illuminate yourself, so stand back a bit. Simple tactics, simple things. Sometimes it's so simple we don't even think about it. We don't. Because we think it's so simple, well, you know. Just throwing it out there. Things for consideration. All right. 
what else do I want to talk about today? I got some things I want to talk about. Uh, you know what? Let's talk. This is important. We all do it. We all have one. If you're a prepper and you've been stockpiling food and water, like you should, if you haven't, do it. It's really never too late. It's only too late when there's nothing left on the shelves. And it might be coming sooner than you think. That's the story yesterday. Oh, there's a high demand for this product. Limit of four. Limit of two. Limit of one. Tim Gamble. You know, I, I've talked to him a few times. I haven't talked to him in a while. But he, he has a great article in Dystopian Survival. It's, it's good, and I want you to understand this because it's something we have to think about as preppers. What happens when the food stockpile runs out? Shit hits the fan finally happened. The grid went down. Supply chain completely broke beyond repair. Chaos, violence, and death reigned in the cities and suburbs as the survivors fight over the remaining scraps as if it was some sort of brutal reality TV show. You know what? Don't give those idiots in Hollywood any more ideas. They'll put that shit on. They're that dumb and desperate. Speaking of which, as things start to go downhill and prices skyrocket, when you leave the grocery store and you're in the parking lot with your groceries in your cart and you're walking to your car, that is the time you're going to be most vulnerable to uh, robbery or theft of your uh, groceries. That is the time Instead of thinking to yourself, well, gee, I saved $11 here with my coupons. That's great. That's not the time to be thinking about that. You need to be looking around. Have your situational awareness up. Is there somebody following you and they don't have a grocery cart or anything in their hands? No items, no bags, nothing? Following you out the door? Is there somebody wandering around the parking lot that just doesn't look right? We're talking about situational awareness. You, look, there's some things that criminals won't do. If you are locked into your zombie mode, like most people are, I got my cell phone and I'm talking, da, 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 da. You're not paying attention to what's going around you. You have made it very easy to become a victim. Most criminals I'm not saying all of them, most of them, if you're looking around and you're aware and alert of what's going on around you, you are not going to be targeted because you're too hard of a, uh, a victum. You, 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 won't, you won't make an easy victim. And they like easy victims, believe me. Something to think about. So let's get back to it. Look, the good news is that your family have remained safe and well-fed. Thanks to your wisdom of stockpiling lots of food and other supplies. But as the months have dragged on and on, things haven't returned to normal. Supply chain remains broken, store shelves remain empty, and your larder, no matter how deep, is finally starting to run out. You are forced to ask the unthinkable. What happens when your food stockpile runs out? It will happen eventually. No matter how much food, water, medicine, other supplies we stockpile, our supplies will eventually run out if things don't return to normal fairly soon. And the way this world is going, we may not see normal return during our lifetimes. Maybe not even within our kids' lifetimes. What then? Here's the dirty little secret of prepping. Stockpiling food and other stuff is only a short-term fix. And with great effort and expense, a medium-term fix at best. We can buy some time by stockpiling, but that is all we are doing, buying time. We are not solving the problem. Once the larder runs empty, the real problem will become obvious. And the real problem is that we become dependent not on ourselves, our family, and our tribe, as it was thousands of years, but on the modern worldly system for our sustenance. 
Overseas manufacturing of basic goods, lawn international supply chains, just-in-time inventory systems, and lean manufacturing systems, aka just-in-time manufacturing, have replaced local economies and actual relationships. This has maximized profits for the elites, but created a system far too fragile to handle any problems that may arise. No. Your great-grandmother survived the Great Depression because her supply chain was local. And she knew how to do stuff. Do you? We don't provide for ourselves or our families anymore and haven't in decades. Instead, we depend on the fragile worldly system to do that for us. Sure, most of us work for money, but then we trade that money for goods produced halfway around the world by people who hate us. Our supply chains are no longer local, and we no longer do stuff for ourselves, and most of us don't know how to do stuff anyway. Question for you. Men, women, how many of you know how to change the oil in your car? How many of you have a complete tool set? And by complete, I mean just a basic, complete tool set. Screwdrivers, wrenches, that kind of thing. How many of you have that? How many of you actually know how to use them? Look, you're, you're laughing, but there are people out there who don't know how to use a freaking screwdriver. They don't know how to drive a nail. They don't know how to insert a screw. And my wrist is tired. Well, yeah. Yeah, it happens. So this leaves us vulnerable at every link of the worldly system. We need someone to employ us, which gives them power over us. Take the jab or no job for you. By the way, I was telling my mother-in-law the other just yesterday. Oh, was this yesterday? No, Sunday. I said, you know what? I'm not working ever again. I'm tired of this. I'm not going to find another job. I got my pension. And I'm not going to work any again. Because one, I'm not going to have anybody tell me what days, where, and what time I have to be there. And what I have to do, and how long I have to be there for before I can go home again. And then start the whole privilege over the next day. I'm not doing it anymore. Been doing it since I was 16, I'm not doing it anymore. <coughs> Anyways. The reality of our paycheck dwindles as inflation destroys its pretend value. We use that money to buy food to eat only if the shelves stay full and only if they let us in. No mask, no entry, soon to be no vaccine passport, no entry. Store shelves remain full only as long as the trucks and cargo ships run. Did I tell you that this past summer, because I was on, I was driving, we drove all over, you know, down from Chicago all the way down to Tombstone, Arizona, and then back through Texas. And I, I got to tell you guys, spent a lot of hours in that truck. And I'm thinking to myself, these guys in the semis, they're in there for a lot longer than I am. How, you know what? I got all new respect for those guys. Those guys are my heroes. Because I've done, you know, eight, ten hours. And that's like, good God, I couldn't wait to get out of the truck. I had to unfold myself. Oh, it was, it was just, I learned a lot. And I'm okay with saying that. So anyways, those ships and trucks need stuff to carry, which is produced mostly in faraway lands ruled by governments that don't like us. For example, China. And those ships and trucks require what? Fuel. Which they don't want us to produce ourselves anymore because of climate change. So we must beg people who don't like us, OPEC and Russia, to produce what we can but won't. Apparently, be, apparently foreign oil doesn't cause climate change or something. Who the hell knows? Are you starting to see why we have supply chain problems and high inflation? Are you starting to understand that this situation is intentional? Are you starting to understand why it won't end anytime soon? Because the only real solution for our larders running out is a return to the old paths of self-reliance and local economies built around agrarian communities. For those of you who had to suffer through a public school education 
Agrarian means farms. The time we have left before the shit hits the fan and the time after the shit hits the fan that our food storage buys needs us to be spent preparing for what happens when the food stockpile runs out. This starts with self-reliance. Self-reliance means providing for ourselves and our families on an ongoing basis. Buying food is one off. You eat it and it's gone. It means raising our own food through gardening or raising livestock, chickens, goats, etc. And through planting fruit and nut trees and berry bushes. This may seem easy to country folks with a bit of land. But are you doing it yet? Or are you waiting for your food stockpile to run out before you learn how? But city folk and suburbanites can do it too. You can. I promise you can. You got a backyard? You can plant a garden. It's pretty simple. Better learn how to can too. You'll be surprised how much you can grow on a small plot of land. Even if it's less than a quarter acre. By the way, I have less than a quarter acre. I had so much food. So many vegetables, we couldn't even eat, we, we couldn't, we started giving away to our neighbors, even they didn't want it anymore. That's how much I had. Now, I do recommend the books, Mini Farming, Self-Sufficiency on a Quarter Acre, and the Mini Farming Bible, The Complete Guide to Self-Sufficiency on a Quarter Acre. They're both, by, they're both written by Brett Markham. Look them up, buy it, know it, learn it, live it. It could also mean hunting, fishing, foraging, but really this is only a supplement to your food production at best because game will quickly become scarce once the grid goes down like it did during the Great Depression. Besides, how many of us are actually good enough to provide 100% of our family's food this way? Let's be honest about it. Most of you aren't hunters. You aren't. I bet you... A quarter of the people that listen to this podcast don't even have a firearm. Not that you need a firearm to go hunting, but it sure hell makes it a lot easier. We also need to develop relationships with farmers in our areas. By the way, if you look down on farmers, screw you, go hungry. You ought to be kissing the farmer's ass. You know what? People, I, it was the last year during the, uh, the lockdowns. The jackasses in Los Angeles sat there and were bitching about farmers and looked down upon the farmers. You know what? You can kiss their ass too, as well as mine. You don't like the farmer? Don't like how he does his thing? Doesn't like how he makes his money, how he raises food, gets food, and then sells it to the market so you can eat? Screw you, drop dead, go hungry. Go eat fucking grass with the rest of your vegan friends, knuckleheads. I wonder, if a vegan sees me cutting my grass, does their mouth start to water? I wonder. So what? We need to learn where the local farms are in our area. Visit the local farmer's market. Actually shake hands with the farmer, learn his name. It's the first step of building an agrarian community. What is an agrarian community? Agrarianism is an economic and social philosophy which places primary importance on agricultural and related fields and in rural living as opposed to industrialized urban living. I believe the agrarian lifestyle is much more conducive to living God's way rather than worldly ways. I also believe agrarianism is a healthier lifestyle both physically and emotionally. Local economies built around agrarian communities is an absolute must for future survival. And it's also a biblical concept. Something that uh, Tim Gamble wrote a few years ago is, agrarianism is God's intent for his people. Humans were originally designed by God to live in and tend to the Garden of Eden. Later, after the fall, we were commanded by God to till the soil and to raise our own food. Throughout the Bible, there are numerous examples of God telling his followers to avoid large cities, which is a worldly invention, to live in the mountains and other rural areas as to to basically be simple country folk. That's not, you won't find simply country folk in the Bible if you're looking for that phrase. Biblical agrarianism doesn't mean everyone must be a farmer or homesteader after all. There are plenty of support functions that must be done. 
but that as God's people, our lives, culture, economy, and civilization should reflect the primary importance of agriculture. And that's, that's what Tim Gamble wrote in the Precepts of Scriptural Survivalism. So what happens when the food, style, the food stockpile runs out? We as individuals, families, and communities will have to provide for ourselves. How successful or not, we will be at this completely dependent on what we do between now and then. Something to think about, my friends. I wanted to put it out there because I think it's important for us to think about things. We prepare now. Learn now when you got the time, when you can. It's better to learn when you have the time and a, a more conducive learning atmosphere, as opposed to trying to learn under the gun, under pressure. That's when mistakes get made. You, 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 it could be successful at it, but again, you just, you just don't know. It's not like cramming for a test, my friends. It doesn't work out. It doesn't work like that. Uh, the Hill, a perfect thing here. And they, wrote, they ask a great question. Is the United States capable of thinking strategically? And the answer, my answer is no, it is not. Uh, case in point, last week I did a story that all the four stars in the Pentagon need to be fired and replaced. They do. They're more worried about what they're going to do when they get done with their military service. They're more worried about what the politics is, are. What the politics are of the day, what the politics will be. And where do they fit in? Look, everyone wants to be in charge. The thing of it is, not everybody can be in charge. You can't. You know, you know what they say, ten chiefs, one Indian, eh, doesn't work out too well. Probably uh, since George Washington, U.S. presidents have been accused of having no defense strategy or the wrong strategy. This is particularly acute today because the crisis is not an absence of strategy, but sound strategic thinking. The last presidents who thought uh, strategically were Richard Nixon, exemplified in his outreach to China and his Persian Gulf two-pillar strategy, which brought Saudi Arabia and Iran under the Shah together to counter the Soviet Union, and George Bush, who reversed the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and eviscerated a good part of Saddam Hussein's army. Yeah, that's true. Actually, you think about Richard Nixon, a couple things. One, he was the last president where the country actually turned a profit. Second of all, his masterstroke of ping pong diplomacy was master. A ma it should be, they, too many politicians today don't have a clue what the implications were when Nixon went to China and drove that wedge between China and Russia. It's still there today. Maybe not as hard as it was when it happened, but it's still there. Since then, presidents from both parties have largely bungled foreign and defense policies and strategies. Bill Clinton began the expansion of NATO that contributed powerfully to Russia's resentment and anger towards the West. Case and point. We're looking at Ukraine. The Russians have almost 200,000 troops on the border of Ukraine. You know, you know what the Russians are worried about? This is their only worry about Ukraine. Ukraine joining NATO. Now, today sometime on December 7th, 80 years after Pearl Harbor attack, we have uh, a chief executive who is mentally uh, cognitive dysfunction. And he's going to go onto a high stakes phone call with Putin. Putin's going to have him for lunch. 
I would love, you know, remember Vinman? I, I was there at the phone call. I know what was said. This is what was said. I would love to see the transcript of that call. Oh, yeah. And you wonder why Russia is so paranoid about any type of military buildup on their border? World War II. The Russians lost more civilians than any other country in that war. And after the war, they swore they would never, ever have that happen to them again. So, and then we have George W. Bush stumbled into Afghanistan and then Iraq, and Iraq's in America's worst strategic catastrophe since the Civil War. Yeah, we can thank uh, Biden for his... Uh, Wonderful withdrawal of forces. I don't believe we should have been in Afghanistan that long to begin with. Look, you can give the people the arms, you can give them the ammunition, you can give them the training. You can't do the fighting for them. They have to want it themselves. They have to be willing to spill their own blood if that's what it takes. Now, Barack Obama drew red lines in Syria that he did not honor led from behind and overwhelming in killing Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, throwing that country into civil war, pivoted to Asia without informing friends and allies in advance, infuriating China and frightening partners, and put in place the 4 plus 1 strategy that explicitly made China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran enemies to be defeated if war came. Now, Donald Trump put the America first and largely withdrew from global leadership and membership in the Paris Climate Accord, which I think was the right thing to do. And the World Health Organization, again, the right thing to do. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action to prevent Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons and other fora. He also declared NATO obsolete, offending friends and allies in the process. I'm not so sure he was wrong by declaring NATO to be obsolete. Now, President Biden entered office trying to repair the damage done by the Trump administration. But relations with China have become more prickly, and Russia now has, like I said, almost 200,000 troops threatening Ukraine. Oh, here we are. You're going to love this, guys. Now, Biden's interim national security guidance is heavy on aspiration and ideology, and light on crisp directions to the Pentagon. After ideology, Biden aims for democracy to outlast, to outlast autocracy. Quote, to prevail, we must demonstrate that democracies can still deliver for our people, end quote, he wrote in the guidance. It will not happen by accident. We will have to defend our democracy, strengthen it, and renew it. No doubt China, Russia, Iran, North Korea are listening. Regarding national defense, he wrote, we will ensure our armed forces are equipped to deter our adversaries, defend our people, interests, and allies, and defeat threats that emerge. But the use of military force should be the last resort, not the first. And like the Trump national defense strategy, Biden's aspirational objectives remain undefined. Let me ask you this, my friends, and this has been posed, and I know you've seen it, do you think the United States will go to war to defend Taiwan from mainland China? It's out there. There are no, there are no answers coming forth. But worse, the strategic logic is reversed. The just-released Pentagon conclusions of its global posture review came before the national security and defense strategy reviews, which will be completed in 2022. This ready, fire, aim approach also applied to NATO. NATO released its military strategy of deterrence and defense earlier this year before approving the overarching strategic concept at the heads of states and government summit next September. Does that mean presidents and their administrations are no longer able to think strategically? By contrast, China and Russia have followed the advice of Sun Tzu, the great Chinese general and philosopher who advised several millennia ago that the best strategy was to win without fighting. Next best was to attack the enemy's strategy. 
The worst was to allow tactics to replace strategy. If you have not read Sun Tzu, The Art of War, please do so. It would appear that the U.S. is following the last in which aspirations, process, and tactics have become strategy. Fixing a failure in strategic thinking is conceptually easy but politically impossible. First, we need to attack Russian and Chinese strategies. Second, we must think about why the U.S. does not have an overall national plan and strategy. Since elections for Congress take place every two years, perhaps we should have a two-year plan. Any business organization will not succeed without a strategic plan. Why is this nation any different? Attacking other strategies and having a national strategic plan may not guarantee better strategic thinking, but both would surely be far better than what we have now. You're saying, John, who the hell wrote that? I'm going to tell you. Harlan Ullman, PhD, is a senior advisor at Washington, D.C.'s Atlantic Council and the primary author of Shock and Awe. His latest book is due on December 14th, is The Fifth Horseman, The New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and That World at Large. Hmm. Sounds like a coffee table book to me. And I don't mean that to be facetious. I don't. I know we're running long, but I don't care. Uh, hundreds of mathematicians have warned against social justice-based math standards. We have to follow the science. Well, we only follow the science when it's convenient to do so. When it's politically convenient to do so. Idiots. Hundreds of mathematicians and scientists have signed a statement calling on educators, teachers union, to abandon well-intentioned efforts to close achievement gaps in math education, saying it could have unintended consequences. We all know by now, preppers and patriots, when government starts fiddling around and screwing around with stuff, there are always unintended consequences. And how they deal with those unintended consequences? Well, we just throw money at it. But we don't have any money. We're broke. The treasury's empty. Oh, no, 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 no. We just print more money. And we throw that money at it. But then we have inflation. It doesn't matter. The open letter on K-12 mathematics is a significant pushback against efforts to reform math education due to achievement gaps that often fall upon racial lines. Liberal activists and educators, known as Teachers Union, <coughs> say the reforms are necessary to achieve racial equity due to those racially disparate achievement levels. To date, the letter has been signed by 597 math professionals from all over the country, including numerous college professors, high school teachers, and researchers, ranging from engineers to physics and computer science professors. The letter says well-intentioned efforts to reform math education, including a much-aligned uh, effort in California dubbed the California Mathematics Framework, may superficially achieve goals of reducing student achievement gaps, but are ultimately just kicking the can to college, which they say will lead to lower math achievement in schools, thus hurting the ability of students to enter STEM fields. Such frameworks aim to reduce achievement gaps by limiting the availability of advanced mathematical courses to middle schoolers and beginning high schoolers, the letter says. Such a reform would disadvantage K-12 public school students in the United States compared with their international and private school peers. It may lead to a de facto privatization of advanced mathematics K-12 education and disproportionately harm students with fewer resources. Now, the California mathematics framework which the letter specifically cites as concerning, says teachers should take a justice-oriented perspective to teaching math and that a social justice approach to mathematics enables the humanization of mathematics. The signers of the letter include several California public school math teachers as well as a number of professors at several University of California schools, including UC Berkeley and UC Davis. Oh yes, 
Berkeley. Yeah, that was, that was in the 60s and 70s, the birthplace of the free speech movement. Not so much anymore. The letter outlines three goals that math education should be focused on. The first of which is that all students, regardless of background, have access to a math curriculum with precision and rigor. The second goal calls for all students to have the opportunity to be nurtured and challenged to fulfill their potential. While the third goal calls for educators to reject a one-size-fits-all approach to K-12 mathematical education. Now, while the U.S. K-12 system has much to improve, the current trends will instead take us further back, the letter says. Reducing access to advanced mathematics and elevating trendy but shallow courses over foundational skills would cause lasting damage to STEM education in the country and exacerbate uh, inequality by diminishing access to the skills needed for social mobility. You poor bastards in California. Oh, by the way, in Sacramento, you people in California, you poor bastards. I know, I say it every week, and every time I see something crap up in the news about California, I just shake my head and wonder how in the hell can anybody freaking want still live there? Well, they want to knock down, and don't forget, there's a super Democrat majority in the California State House. Well, they want to knock down all the government buildings and build new ones. It's going to cost billions of dollars that they don't have. They're going to have to raise taxes again. They don't understand that the, every time you raise taxes, more people say, screw you, we're leaving. Oh. And here we go. With, here, I, I got to do it, guys. I don't want to. I have to. At some point, the Democrats are going to have to really follow the science. And the science says, one, coronavirus 19 is this, my friends. It's alive. It is. It will continue to mutate just like the flu does every year. They get an idea of how the flu virus, influenza, mutates. And that's what they base their flu vaccines on. They got an idea. Sometimes they're right on the money, and sometimes they're not so much. The coronavirus, COVID-19, will mutate. It's mutated before. It's going to mutate again. So let's... So meanwhile... We're going to keep having mask mandates and panics. Oh, it mutated. Well, yeah, it, it's going to. It's a living organism. It's a living organism, period. It's going to mutate. And every time it mutates, does that necessarily mean we have to go to lockdown? we got to go lockdown. Oh, we got to go to lockdown. we got to have masks. Got to have masks. Even though they don't work. The mask everyone's wearing are not N95 grade. If you want an antiviral mask, you have to have an N95 grade mask. But it makes us feel so good and safe to wear a face diaper. Washington Examiner, Sunday. Biden needlessly extends the COVID misery. So the film, Please Remove Your Shoes, released in 2010, documents the development of security theater in airports after 9-11. It shows how the Transportation Security Administration's screening for commercial flights encouraged a false sense of security. Cat, you are not allowed to play with that. Come here. Get over here. Come on. Come here. You goopy thing. Come here. I don't care. You don't play with that. You stay away from that. Eh, playing with the... Uh, blind cord you can't you, no you're not playing with that no don't even look over there you goof anyway <laughs> don't you look at me like that you psychopath so 
Uh, it's great for commercial flights, encourage a false sense of security, kind of like wearing a mask, it's a false sense of security among passengers, so that they are more likely to fly without making anyone much safer. This conclusion is reinforced each time screeners fail another test by inspectors who sneak guns and other weapons past them. By the way, we did that when I was assigned to the court security division. We had magnetometers and screenings. You know what? Sometimes they'd catch the weapons or a bomb. Sometimes they didn't. The headline absurdity of the film is the annoyance passengers must endure for the charade of security. The requirement that passengers take off their shoes continues to baffle most people, but don't forget, the business about being forced to take all the electronic devices out of your bags, putting them in a separate bed. Not the bin your shoes are in because that might cause the plane to explode. Security theater is not just about boarding airlines. It's also about making people feel secure from COVID-19 when such security does not exist. We live in a new era in which there is simply more disease risk than before. COVID-19 increased the average American's chances of dying in a given year from about 0.72% in 2019 to 0.82% in 2020. That's not negligible, but here's some additional perspective. Before the pandemic, the death rate in several states was already higher than 0.82%. If you think you might have been willing to chance living in Tennessee in 2019, you are probably already contemplating a greater statistical risk of death than you face now amid the pandemic, depending, of course, on where you actually do live. This is not the Black Death slaying nations. Rather, it's just another manageable risk to your health and life, like so many others. It's been two, year, two years since the first known case, and people are over it. Everyone will have to learn to live with a bit more risk. Many people have adjusted well, but many haven't. Unfortunately, the administration won't let go of the foolish, impossible goal, goal of zero COVID. Biden's proposal to extend mask wearing, by the way, was it Oregon? I think it's in Oregon. Some city council has decided they want a permanent mask mandate. Yeah, permanent, really? Morons, but well, it makes us feel good. All right. Biden's proposal to extend mask wearing on airplanes through March will do little to prevent the spread of a disease that everyone, vaccinated and unvaccinated, is probably doomed to get. Throw in his Africa travel ban, which by the way, I don't, my friends, there's Omicron virus in Canada. You don't see him closing the borders there. Sounds a bit racist to me. Just saying. And his new mandatory quarantine proposal for all new international arrivals. And Biden's plan to defeat the coronavirus is just a more dramatic and inconvenient version of security theater. People in places such as New York and D.C., May not be aware of it, but most of the country moved on from mask wearing months ago. Those who got vaccinated largely stopped wearing masks last spring. Those unwisely refusing vaccination were probably not masking in the first place, and at this point, they certainly aren't. Don't believe us? Just watch Monday Night Football and look at the packed stands. See all those faces? That's how most people live every day, mask-free, aware of the increased risk, not losing sleep over it. Now, air travel is the great exception, but only because it is one of the few areas of daily life that the federal government controls. A study by Yale and Stanford scientists on mask wearing found that cloth masks, very few people wear proper surgical masks, are roughly 37% effective at filtering out droplets that can carry the coronavirus. Considering that almost no one is wearing a mask anywhere except in flight and at the airport anyway, this marginally effective safety measure will do little to arrest the spread of the virus through air travel. Fortunately, the coronavirus's effect on human health seems to get weaker as its variants become more virulent. Also fortunately, drug companies have come up with new and cheaper therapies to treat COVID-19 since prevention is not and never was 
a realistic long-term goal. In the meantime, there is no reason for Biden to play the fool of the security theater. He is understandably coming under pressure to do something, anything, as approval of his handling of the pandemic plunges. Political pressure is a strong but often unhelpful incentive. Oh, my friends. Yeah. Who, who did write that? It doesn't say. I always like to give credit where credit is due, and I don't see a way to do that here. Although it came from the Washington Examiner, I don't know who wrote it. Don't know. My friends, are they right? I think they're right. You know what? I went into um, Menards. You know, you save more money at Menards. If I've got money in my pocket, I will spend it at Menards. I will find something to buy there. So I go to Menards, and I've got this stupid mask on. I'm already fed up with it, but I've got to go in there and get what i got to get. All right. So I'm in there, and I see three or four people without their mask on. I said, screw it. I'm taking mine off. You know what? No one said a word to me. Went in there, did my thing. I feel sorry for the employees. they got to wear that shit if they want to keep their jobs. But you know what? If the employees were smart, if they, were, they just band together and say we're not... Either we don't have to wear the mask, make it optional, or we don't come to work. Now, you know what? You can fire us, but you're going to be firing a lot of people. You're not going to have any, you're not going to have any workers coming in. That's the quick way to get that done. Well, there you go. <clears throat> Hope you enjoyed this episode, this glowing Testament to the Second Amendment and freedom of speech right here on the Contra Radio Network, the Jeffers Brief. I am John Jeffers. I want to say thanks for listening. Have an American day. Have an American day. We'll see you next week. <laughs>